Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about the sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. It's pretty good. Isn't that pretty good? <laughs> like, eh. No, I, I think that's pretty good. Uh, my, my name is Jay, and uh, I have the great honor of uh, introducing uh, our speaker tonight. Actually, John and Eleanor Mumford, who are here together, have been with us now for over a week, and we have done all we can to work them to death. And this <laughs> is it. Have, have we been doing that? Yeah, good, good. Get our money's worth. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> But uh, but this, this I, I'm happy to report we're in the final stretch right now. This is it. This is the last thing that they will be required to do uh, from this slave driver uh, known as me. But uh, they have blessed our blessed our churches all all over the NCC and the different uh, retreats they've done. We led the women's retreat last week. We had men's retreat that just wrapped up uh, yesterday. They've done a series of leaders meetings for all. A lot of different churches taught twice in Arvada this morning and on the east side on Friday night as well. And uh, I got to hear a little preview of what um, Eleanor is going to share by hearing the effects in East Denver, and I think you're in for a real treat. Uh, John and Eleanor planted a church in Wimbledon. Anybody been to Wimbledon? Yeah, okay. To Two just happen to be next to each other. You can you can swap stories on that in a minute. Uh, and uh, then out of this church grew what amounted to a movement of churches all over the UK. Uh, so they became the directors of the UK Vineyard, and then uh, turned over their church as well as uh, the movement of churches in the UK. That now they help lead and coordinate uh, the Vineyard worldwide. So they travel all over the world, seeing what God is doing in. How many countries now? 102 countries around the world uh, where vineyard churches are. You're, you're going to be, you're going to though. They're going to all 102 soon. Coming to a country near you. Uh, but, but, uh, but really with all that that's really interesting, um, John and Eleanor are just precious uh, to my family personally. We met their oldest son, James, on his gap year he had in Columbus, Ohio. Like James effectively took my job uh, where I worked at a church, and we became really close friends, and then uh, they made the horrible mistake of inviting me to come and speak at some things in the UK, and we became really close. Their, their youngest son, uh, Marcus, also did an internship and some time at our church here in Denver as well um, in his, what was his gap year, and, uh, and then he's gone on and done some other things. Just different things. Yeah, and and uh, and so anyway, uh, uh, I realized uh, a year ago that I had spent more time in John Elnor's home than my parents' home in the last uh, 10 years. And so uh, we've been really close to them, and I'm so grateful that they've come, and they really have left a deposit with our church over the last week, and I'm sure that will happen again here tonight. So would you welcome uh, Eleanor Mumford? 
He's so naughty. He's so charming and engaging and casual and such a slave driver. And the truth is <laughs> that if we don't get to all 102 countries, it's simply because we've had to spend so much time here doing what he tells us. <laughs> Our traveling career is going to be shortened by the demands of one pathic. But he does it so sweetly that we don't mind, really. So this is great. And he's right. We have been here for 10 days or so, and we've been talking our heads. Well, it's, for me, it's no effort. I talk the minute I wake up. Never stop. But um, John, on the other hand, is more of an introvert and is absolutely exhausted. <laughs> this is an amazing place. I mean, this is frightfully grown up. It's a real church, you know? In fact, it's more than a church. John said to me, this is a cathedral. You know, we do cathedrals in our country. We do know about cathedrals. And this comes close. Not quite, but close. And it is lovely. And it's fun. And won't it be fun when it's packed to the back, back to the windows? And you're on the way, people. Look at this. This is very fun. And although at one level you all look sort of ordinary from where I'm standing, in the nicest possible way, you all look ready for this. You know, this is amazing what you could be doing. And joking apart, John and I simply love this church. We love Mile High Vineyard. We've been here so often over, we've known Jane and Danielle for 20 years. So this is sort of a bit of a love fest. But actually, it, what it tells me is that over this time, we've watched their vision coming to pass. And we visited most of the churches that you, you, know, you work together with in the NCC. And it is a very remarkable thing that you are engaged upon here in Denver. And I have to say, we do travel, and we talk about you, we gossip about you all around the place, tell... I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> well, John and I travel... Okay. How, do we have a time limit? Do we, do we have any childcare? Do we have anything else that matters, or should we just tell stories? <laughs> I mean, this is the final furlong. I am demob happy, and I don't care. <laughs> I have no responsibilities here. No, John and I do a lot of this together. We do travel the world together. We have a wonderful, wonderful time. And we've been married for 40 years in April, in love for 44, and it's really going well. Love it. Love it. Absolutely. Thank you. So John and I, we were on a flight recently from um, Gatwick, London, to Copenhagen, which takes all of oh, 40 minutes to get to Copenhagen. And um, 40 minutes. So anyway... <laughs> This is how it's been for 40 years. So, um, but as I have the microphone and he's so tired, we'll be fine. Anyway, we were on this flight and we were put in separate rows. John was appalled, we were separated. And so he called the attendant over and he said, now look, I'm sorry about this, but I don't want to be, make a fuss, but, but my wife and I, we have been married now for nearly 40 years and we've been in love for 44. And um, British Airways have clearly not hoisted this and they've put us in separate rows. And the woman looked at him and she said, um, I wonder if you could arrange the seating so we could be together for this 40-minute flight. So anyway, this poor girl, she did everything she could, and there was not a romantic on that flight. Nobody was shifting for anybody. So poor John was in J and I was in H and so forth. So anyway, he then added to it by saying to her, I don't wish to be awkward, but I think probably I also factor in that I, am, I do struggle with separation anxiety. <laughs> I mean, I ask you. So anyway, nothing, she couldn't make it happen, and it didn't work anyway. However, um, halfway through the flight, she emerged from first class with two little bottles of champagne because she said, we're so impressed the way you love each other. It was really fun. So anyway, we were in separate rows, but she came to me and she said, look, I'm just so sorry we haven't been able to do anything. And then she said, you could probably do with a little break. <laughs> LAUGHTER 
this maniac in Roger. Anyway, I understand that you are in the middle of a Lent series or early on in the series in which we prepare our hearts and our thinking towards um, Good Friday when we, of course, commemorate the death of Jesus for us, and then Easter Sunday when we all rejoice together in the fact that he rose from the dead and we are alive because of him. So it's a pretty, pretty significant time. However, um, and we're talking, I think I'm right, in some of the things that Jesus said about himself, the most extraordinary claims that he made. And this evening we're going to look at a passage in John chapter 7, and I think it's going to come up on the screens. Am I right? Because if not, I am sunk because I didn't bring my Bible with me. So <laughs> is that shocking? So we're going to read part of John's gospel, if I can do it from here. There you go. This is Jesus going up to the feast in Jerusalem. After this, Jesus had went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because of the Jewish... The, oh, I can hardly see it. Believers there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, one of Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, they said. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that, the world, that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? This thing was building. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed, and they asked, where did this man get such learning without having been taught? On the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive, because up until that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's an interesting passage. Earlier in the chapter we see that the disciples wanted Jesus to go up with them to this big festival, which happened in Jerusalem every year. But he said, no, I'm not ready for it, you go on ahead. Interesting. I'd never realized until I studied it again how key the timing of it all was. Jesus is key in his timing. And he times things right because he hears the Father. He listens for instructions. It's a fascinating little observation. So he said, I'm not ready. And of course, he then went later. Now, what was the Feast of Tabernacles, you should be asking? It was also known as the Feast of Booths. Although booth is a funny word, I think. It, to me, it speaks of circuses or bake sales. It doesn't really have the gravitas that tabernacle has. 
So anyway, God ordained that the people of Israel should commemorate the things that had happened through their history by various festivals. And this particular festival commemorated the fact that once they were wandering through the wilderness, having been brought through the uh, Red Sea, through the mercy and the, mir the miracle that God did, they started wandering around the wilderness. And being the children of Israel, they were constantly in a grump. So they'd come down through the, um, the, the area called Sin, and they were in the area, the valley of Rephidim, which was desert. And there was no water. And so we're told in Exodus 17 that the people grumbled. And they said to Moses, there's no water. They th and they thirsted there for water, and they murmured against Moses. Murmuring, grumbling, whining, as was their wont for 40 years of it. So, of course, Moses went to the Lord and said, Lord, this is so hard. These people are grumbling about me. They want garlic. They can't get garlic in the desert. They're fed up because we left us. And they were just in a miserable state. And Moses cried out to the Lord. And so what did the Lord do? In his kindness, in his mercy, in his long-suffering, he made water spring from a rock where there was none. And the miracle was wrought, and the people drank, and water saved their lives. And for hundreds and hundreds of years thereafter, there was a festival, once a year, for, the, for seven days, in which they would remember that time when the Lord tabernacled with them, made his presence felt, and gave them the water. So that is the backdrop to this extraordinary scene. And it was only on the last day, at the highest point of the festival, maximum drama, that Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, think about it for a moment. His voice must have been like a megaphone. There was no PA. There were no wires. There was no team at the back. He held court to thousands of people on the Sea of Galilee just by the power of his voice. Phenomenal voice. And he stood in a loud voice, and he said to them, If any of you thirst, as in Rephidim, if any of you thirst, come to me. Come to me. Don't think back to then. Don't commemorate all that. Don't just go there. Don't even think about what's going to happen in the future. Come to me in this moment, and I will supply everything you need. All that thirst in your soul. St. Augustine used to say to pray, Lord, put salt on my lips that I might thirst for you. And he's talking about that deep inner thirst that cannot be satisfied anywhere else. And Jesus said, come to me and I will meet that need and I will give you rivers of water and they will well up from within you and bring life. And he spoke of the Spirit. It was an incredibly dramatic moment. And as C.S. Lewis said, either he was mad, or he was bad, or he was God. Jesus said, all the past is summed up. All the future hope is encapsulated in me. Come to me and come now. And when he talked about the rivers of living water, we're told he was talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit which had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And what happened at the end of his life and ministry, after his death and resurrection? He met together with his disciples on the Mount of Olives before he went back to his Father in heaven. And these were his last recorded words, people. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was his final word. This was his take-it-to-the-bank promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And what he's saying is, today, even this night, you will receive power. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon us as a people. And you will receive power to be his witnesses, to talk the talk, to lay hands on people when they're sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, to care for the oppressed. You will receive power to do that. And you will do it in Jerusalem, which is Denver, in Judea, which is Colorado, in Samaria, which is every other state you like to name, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Because that's the call of God on these people. And I have to say to you, in parenthesis, that's what drives the vineyard. That's what drives us on. Because God is, and Jesus has said, you go to the ends of the earth, and there are vineyards popping up like mushrooms to the ends of the earth. 102 nations and still counting. It's wonderful what's going on out there. And in one way, one of the joys that John and I have is to travel the world and then come and tell people like you who are so precious to us. This church, I cannot tell you how precious it is to us. The Mile High Vineyard has been for years. We've come to tell you, you are part of something bigger than you know, something more exciting than you can imagine. There are things happening in the foothills of the Himalaya mountains, for example, that are just like a rep rep replica from the Book of Acts. There's a group meeting in the foothills of the Himalayas in Kathmandu, outside Kathmandu in the village, nor villages north. And one of those villages is a center of black magic, witchcraft, wickedness of every possible sort. And there's a huge rock, huge, huge rock, with all the spells and the magic potions and things written on this rock. So what did the vineyard do as its group activity for a week? Waited till everybody was asleep. They had a party, a mission, ministry trip, if you like, went up into the village, to the lake, and pushed the whole thing into the lake. The whole thing, drowned it. That was their ministry trip. And do you know what happened? 46 out of 50 village, uh, families in the village came to Jesus. Just like Lystra and Derby in the book of Acts when Dorcas was raised from the dead. People, this is the vineyard. I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud of them. And you know there was another story. Is this all right? Are we, I didn't ask you about time. We're okay. So anyway, even if we weren't, I'm on a roll here. This is so much fun. I have so much to tell you about the Holy Spirit. And so there was a, in, in Kathmandu, we had this wonderful couple who lead the church there, Noel and Donna Isaacs. And Noel was walking along the street one day in Kathmandu. And he looked into one of those huge dumpsters. And in the bottom of the dumpster, he saw a little body, a little broken body. And of course, he went, oh my gosh, this is dreadful. Just started praying as you would if you saw a little dead body. And he prayed, and it was this little shriveled woman. And as he started to pray, she sat up and she started screaming, fire, fire, she, she cried. And then he lifted her up and he brought her out of the dumpster. And she said to him, are you a god? And he said, no, but I can tell you who is. And he led her to the Lord. And she is now the associate pastor of the vineyard in Kathmandu. Yes. That's what the vineyard is up to around the world, people. Isn't that fun? Rivers of living water, that's all we're talking about. And it's as available to you and me as it is to these crazy people up in the Himalayan foothills. Amazing. Some of the things that the Lord will do with us all. Because, you see, the church of God needs the power of God to pursue the cause of God across the world today. We can't do it without him. 
And it's those rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit of which Jesus is speaking here in John 7, that breathes life and power into the body of Christ. It's the Spirit of God that galvanizes the church into action. It's the Spirit of God that sends us out, catapults us into the streets of our cities and our offices and our colleges and our homes and our neighborhoods. It's the Spirit of God that enables us to stand firm, gives us words sometimes to say, gives us the bravery to lay hands on people. It's all because of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that puts a spring in our step, a song in our hearts, and the wind in our sails. Why would we not long for him to fill us even more? I heard recently a story of a girl, and uh, she was in a church in London, and they'd been doing a little training group on hearing from God. And I have to tell you, what I love about the Christian faith, it is so pragmatic, it's so earthy, it's so sensible. We can learn to do these things better. We can learn to listen better. We can learn to talk better. We can learn to lay hands more bravely. We can learn how to do it. Jesus taught the disciples. They had constant clinics and ministry times. And we can do the same. So this little girl had been going to a group on how to hear from God, and she was really excited, and she knew this is what she wanted to do. So come lunchtime, she was ready to go for sandwiches. Now, there's a sandwich shop in London called Pret-a-Manger, which is French, so it sounds sophisticated. But the English have taken it over, which is what they do with a lot of things around the world. And we now have Pret-a-Manger in every high street in London, and it's the best sandwich shop in the world, frankly. So this child went to um, Pret-a-Manger for her lunch, and she was all psyched up, and she was going to say something to the girl behind the counter. Nothing all excited. And suddenly, the two people in front of her evaporated. They changed their minds, and they left. And she was face-to-face -face with the girl, across the counter, and she suddenly blurted out, I'm a prophet, which she wasn't told to say, but she did. She said, I'm a prophet, and God says, you're going to make a wonderful mother. And she didn't know what she said, and the girl behind the desk just melted, started weeping, because she was with child. She was with child by a boyfriend whom she didn't dare to tell, and she had arranged an abortion for Thursday. And in the, on the strength of the word of that girl, she canceled the abortion, and a life was saved. Because rivers of living water sprang up from within, deep within that woman, that young woman, who set herself to be naturally supernatural. And are we not those people? Do we not want to be like that? We are people who want to be move in a way that is naturally supernatural. I can't bear religion. I really don't like religion. But I love Jesus. And I want to work in an, and operate in a naturally supernatural way, talking about him, doing some of the things he says to do. It's a good way to waste your life, people. No way better, frankly. We're people who want to see the kingdom come. We pray it all the time. Do you know we have friends in London, John and I, his name is J. John, and he has a wife called Killy, and they're dear friends, and uh, they, live, they lived in an area outside London, and their next-door neighbor had a severe stroke, so severe that she was destined to die, and all the family had been summoned, and everyone was to go and say their goodbyes, and she was in hospital you know, with all the wires and the tubes and the monitors and the blinking lights. And J. John and Killy said, might we come and say, you know, goodbye to her. We'd love to see her again. And the husband said, well, you might as well. She always liked you, which was encouraging. So they went. But as they got into this hospital room, it was really overwhelming to see this little body on the bed with all the wires and the tubes and the blinking lights. So they didn't know what to do. So they decided 
One of them would hold her right hand and one would hold her left. And they would hold each other's hands like a little triangle. And they just prayed, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And she sat up just like that. She sat up and she went home on Monday. This is the kingdom. This is what happens when we ask the kingdom to come. This is what happens when there's rivers of living water well up from inside. And we want to be people who see this happening. We want to be people who practice listening to the Lord and hear things to say about people. We want to do that stuff. We want to be people who long to see healing when we pray for other people. John was on a bus um, in our area not long ago. We don't use buses a lot, but he was on the 465, and he was on his way to Roehampton in Wimbledon, 475. It was the 465, and he was on his way to Roehampton in Wimbledon. See? Uh, which is why, yes, never mind. So anyway. <laughs> anyway, there was a lady on the bus, and she was obviously in great discomfort. Her arm was hurting her, and she was fidgeting around. And John said to her, I couldn't help noticing you were obviously in pain. She said, well, I really am. And he said, you know, I'm a, a Christian. I believe there's a God in heaven, and I know that he loves you. Would you let me pray for you? Well, the bus was crowded, and it was moving, and there was no way she could get out. So it was easier for her to say yes than no. So she said yes, and he prayed for her. And you know, she got out at Roehampton, no more pain, all gone. Just in the strength, length of a bus journey. Well, I mean, he's wonderful, but he's very ordinary. I'm wonderful, but I'm very ordinary. We're all dead, ordinary people. That's what makes this so wonderful. But we are people who long to see lives transformed, people who long to see our cities affected and changed. We have a neighbor in London, and she used to say to her, we travel a lot, obviously, and very often when we're traveling around the UK, the car was never at the door. And when we used to come back from a trip, she would say to me, Eleanor, I love it when I see the car at the door again, because the street is a better place when you're in it which is sweet, but I can only tell you that because you and I know it's nothing to do with the fact that John and I are living there. It's the Spirit of God, people. It's the presence of Jesus. So where you are, in your neighborhoods, in your classrooms, in your colleges, in your workplaces, among your families and friends, whether you realize it or not, you carry the Spirit of God. You carry the presence of Jesus. You have the potential for these rivers of living water to spring up. You are the fragrance of Christ as you go through your lives. How hard does a fragrance try? A fragrance just is. Do you know? I sprayed myself with Chanel this evening because I was coming to see you. But quite frankly, it's, I don't even realize it's there. That's not what it's about. The fragrance of Jesus is so attractive to people, they can't even analyze it. But it's a wonderful thing. And we cannot do the things that he's calling us to do without the Holy Spirit. Seriously, Preston, are we all right? What time would you like me to stop? Um, another five minutes? Which really means ten. Good. <coughs> what does that Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts us. He convicts us of our sin. I noticed how you, you, you put a little definition of sin up there this evening, which is really, really helpful. Because it's such an old-fashioned word. It's such an unpleasant word. It's such a yesterday word. It's such a true word. Sin is a little word with I in the middle. That's all it is. And Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. 
about sin because people do not believe in me. John chapter 16. He didn't say the greatest sins are adultery or incest or larceny or any of the ghastly things or abuse or all the horrible things that invade our television screens. No, no, no. He said the ultimate sin is not believing in him. The beginning and end of it. It's a very interesting word. But it's the Spirit of God that convicts me of that. I was, I was born into a church-going, wonderful family, God-fearing, sweet. But not until my mid-twenties did I actually come to know Jesus. And I was at university in Scotland at St. Andrews, and I was dancing the light fandango. I was in all the teams. I was singing in the choir. I was doing all the things. I was running everything. I loved it. That's what I did. Always wanted to be noticed. Always wanted to be busy. But deep inside, everyone thought, oh, she's, you know, such fun. No, 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 no. Deep inside, there was this deep ache. It was that Augustine thing again about our soul finds no rest until it finds its rest in thee. I had no rest. And it was the Spirit of God that was convicting me that I could not do life on my own and it was time to bow the knee, which of course then I did. We have friends in New York and at the moment one of them has been leading an Alpha group. Have you heard of Alpha? Do you know about Alpha? It's great, great, great thing. Wonderful way of, of bringing one's friends to talk about Christian faith. Anyway, he was working on a, going into the hardest, toughest men's prison in New York. It was all men, hardened criminals, gang members, and worse. They were all very cynical, very disruptive, like a whole sort of bunch of malevolent, overgrown schoolboys. Every week we prayed our socks off. Nothing was happening. And it came to the day when they talked about the Holy Spirit, and we were all so excited, nothing happened. And then it got to the last night of the whole course, and we were asked again to pray. And we metaphorically rolled out our prayer mats and cried out to God again. The first man came into the room, toughest of the tough, and he said, I can't do life anymore. I need Jesus. And he fell on his knees. And the next man came in. He was hard as nails. He was the leader of the pack. He was the most cynical and subversive of them all. And he said, okay, I give up. I need Jesus. And at the end of the evening, they let down the net and they said, is there anybody else who would love to come to Jesus? Every single man in that room came to Christ on that night, in the moment, as rivers of living water flowed out. And they suddenly realized that Jesus was who he said he was and that he, if you would come to him, you could join that too. And they did. Wonderful, because it was the Spirit of God, people, that convicted those men, those really rotten criminals, and he convicted them of his sin, of their sin, and they changed their world. The Holy Spirit convicts, the Holy Spirit convinces. He convinces me from morning till night that what I believe is true. I've sold out for this. I've staked my life on this. I would go to the stake for this. Because I know it's true. And despite all the evidence to the contrary, and despite all the pressures out there, and despite the secularist, pluralist, whatever society that we live in, that is such hard going, still I believe that this is the way to do it. And it's the Holy Spirit from morning till night, from when I open my eyes until I close them again at night, that continues to convince me, convince me that we are on the winning team. And that Jesus is who he says. And the rivers of living water can flow. And we can be used to change our worlds. He convicts, he convinces, he liberates. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sang it just now. He liberates us. 
He sets us free from things that are holding us back. And I love the way Annabeth talked earlier about laying things down. Just laying things down. I prayed for a girl recently who was terribly angry with God, which is a, such a mistake to be. And we prayed together, and she confessed it as sin. And we, she was filled with the Spirit once again. And she was completely set free. I feel completely different, she said. Wonderful thing. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He convicts us, he convinces us, he sets us free, liberates us, and he comes upon us. And that's what we're going to pray together in just these moments. Think back to the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Do you remember Gideon? Heard of Gideon? He was such a washout. He was so pathetic. He was a wimp, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he became a warrior. And he won victories. And then there was Samson. You remember him? He was a rotten apple. He was a shocker. Absolutely. Notorious sinner. And he became the nominal savior of his people as he pulled down the pillars of the temple on the Philistines, inspired by the strength of the Holy Spirit as he came upon him. Wonderful stories. And then I suppose the one I love the most, Samuel said this to Saul. Samuel the prophet. He said, Saul, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy. And you will be changed into a different person. That's the beauty of that promise. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will be changed into a different person. You can be changed from feeling weak to being strong. You can be changed from feeling frightened to being fearless. You can be changed from feeling tongue-tied as you try and talk about your faith to finding yourself quite fluent as you explain why Jesus is so precious to you. You can be changed from cowering in the wine press like Gideon to going out and onto the battlefield and winning victories. And you see, the lovely thing is that we can be changed from being very ordinary people, dead ordinary, honestly, let's be honest, into being quite extraordinary because we are undercover agents for the kingdom. You know, we go out there in deep disguise. We can be so subversive. We can be so mischievous. We can be so dangerous to the kingdom of darkness when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon us and does wonderful things. There was a wonderful um, Roman Catholic uh, bishop, uh, archbishop actually, in Brussels in the eight, 1970s during a time of great revival and charismatic revival, really, in the Roman Catholic Church. His name was Cardinal Sunans. And he once said this, God writes the most extraordinary novels with people who are prepared to play his game. Isn't that lovely? There's something lighthearted about it. This is an adventure, but it's almost like a game because it's so exciting. It's so rewarding. It's so edifying, so wonderful. It's so, so good. Let me tell you just a couple of, of little stories to finish off. <clears throat> John and I know well a couple in London, and they were leading a house group in their church. It was an Anglican church, and it was rather grand, and so they used to call it a pastorate. Nothing like a kinship or a meet-up. Oh, no, no, a pastorate. And this was a very sweet group, and they were all young, and they were, a lot of them were single, young professionals, actually, most of them. And they met together once a week, and they loved each other to death. It was a very sweet community group. And they spent a lot of time being lovely to each other, and quite a lot of time drinking wine, and now and again they would look at a Bible verse. 
It was that sort of a group. And anyway, <laughs> to be honest, anyway, um, because we know the couple well, uh, and one of the boys of the group went off to ski on the Alps, which is a sort of apology for the Rockies. I mean, I know you can score completely on the, when it comes to mountains, but the Alps was the best we could do. And off he went and he skied, and he had a severe accident and he broke his back. He was airlifted off the slopes. He was brought back by ambulance. And um, he was in dreadful pain and, of course, surgery. And they said that he would not work for a year. They just needed to look at this sensibly. This boy was so desperate, and he said to his mum, can you get me to my group? I want to go to the group. I want to be with my friends. So she put him in the car, drove him to the group. They took him up in, to the first floor. They laid him out on the floor. And the group were completely freaked by this. Here was this boy, as unto death looking dreadful, in writhing in pain. And they didn't know what to do, so of course they fed him wine through a straw, and they were trying to be fr <laughs> friendly and all that. And then some bright sparks said, well, perhaps we should pray. And they all thought, oh, crumbs. So they prayed, and they started praying things like this. Um, Lord, would you teach him what you want him to learn through this? Ugh. Can you imagine a more dreary prayer? And then, Lord, would you just help him with patience? No, thank you. And then one little bright spark said, why don't we pray that God would heal him? And the others were going, no, 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 it's too much, too much, too much. But then they did. They prayed, they laid hands on him because he'd read that somewhere in the verse once. And so they laid hands on him. And uh, then his mum drove him home. That was it. All night long, his back was on fire. So hot, in such discomfort, that they made an emergency appointment the next morning for him to go and see the specialist and do all the MRIs and the x-rays, what on earth was happening. He was totally healed, completely. His back was as if nothing had happened, and he went straight back to work within a week. This was amazing, people. And you see, what is so sweet is that that was the result of a group of people, like any of us, who weren't terribly sure of their faith, loved each other dearly, had read a bit of the Bible, and thought, well, let's give it a try. And as they did, do you see what happened? Rivers of living water flowed out from them. The power of Jesus was present to heal. That boy's life was transformed, and those young people have stories to tell that they would never otherwise have had. And finally, one, one more. Finally, people. Finally. Again, John and I living in London next to this young family. Sweet family. Um, he was a lawyer, married to this lovely girl. They had four small children under nine. Don't ask me why, but they did. And it was jolly hard work. And the fourth one was born terribly disabled, severely disabled. And the prognosis was that he would never walk, he would never talk. He was blind, he was deaf. He would always be fed through a tube into his tummy. And the prognosis was terrible. Life expectancy was very low. And the Lord said to me, I want you to go in quite regularly and just start praying for them. So, of course, I did. But, I mean, it was not faith-building opportunity, frankly. It was so sad. And after three or four years, um, in and out, the mother came to faith in Jesus, which was wonderful. And they asked John to baptize all the children in the back garden, which we did. And it was so, so sweet. And then, about three or four years in, the Lord said to me again, I want you to go in this afternoon. So I did. And I saw this child, by now big, Deaf, blind, no movement, nothing, no, no power in his body at all, lying on his mother's lap because, of course, he's big now and heavy. And um, I just said, oh, Jesus, would you just come and strengthen this little boy's body? 
and within half an hour, he started to walk. And he's walking to this day. He's now nine. I mean, honestly. And it was so sweet, because he went to school with his mum in the little stroller to pick up his sisters from school, and he just took hold of the school railings and started walking along, because, of course, he's still blind. So he's walking along the railings, and his mum sent me a text, because that's how we talk about miracles nowadays, isn't it, in texts. So, <laughs> honestly, she sent me a text, she said, Eleanor, look! And she even sent me a little video of this little boy walking. And she said, it was within about an hour of your praying. Do you think it had something to do with it? <laughs> Maybe. And then she sent me another little message. A little while later, she said, I do hope you don't mind. I told somebody. Told somebody? Oh, I've told hundreds of people. Hundreds. Why would you not? Because that's what can happen when you decide you're going to gossip the gospel over the garden fence. That's all it was. And just listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and allow rivers of water to rise up and to bring faith and to bring the power of the Holy Spirit and the power to pray for the sick and see them healed and the power to look for people that are oppressed and helped to set them free and the power to go to the hungry and to the misfits and to the outcasts and to the lonely and to the miserable. There are so many of them all over this city. I mean, I'm sure it's a great city, but it's crawling with people that need Jesus. And as the Anglican prayer book keeps telling us, who are without Christ and without hope in the world. And that, people, is your mission field. That's all you have to do. And this place will be packed before you know it. Do you want to do that? Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. I don't know how you do this, but let's just invite the Spirit of God to come, hey? What else would we do at this moment? I suspect, actually, in this moment, before we do that, do you know, it would not surprise me if there weren't one or two people here for whom all this is a little bit new, a little bit unfamiliar. You've been hanging around, or maybe you're here for the first time, or maybe you're trying to keep a friend quiet by coming. Maybe you don't have that relationship with Jesus that we're all talking about. But maybe something is stirring in you. Maybe something is, maybe God is putting salt on your lips. Maybe you are discovering that within you there is a thirst for this amazing Lord Jesus and for all that he brings with him. And if that were you, what better time ever to ask Jesus to come and be a part of your life than right now? And so in these moments, as we worship and as we pray together, ask him to come. Lord Jesus, here I am. I know that I need you. I know that I've messed up. I know that I can't do life on my own. I'm beginning to understand that you died for me. And I'm now discovering that you want me. Jesus said, if any man thirst, any woman longing, come to me, he said. So I invite you to do that, even this evening. Turn to a friend that came with you. Come to the front. Come and talk to John or me. We'd love it. Nothing I'd love more. And meanwhile, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. The oldest prayer of the Christian church. Come and bless the men and women in this room more than they would have imagined possible. Lord, we are thirsty for you. 
We long for more of you. We long for rivers of living water that will well up from within. We long that the Holy Spirit should come upon us and we will be changed. Even from the people that walked in this evening with all the stuff that we brought with us, that we will be changed. So come, Lord. And just wait for a moment or two. If there's any prayer in your heart at this moment, you can be sure he's hearing it, answering it. Come. Keep. Come and bless them. Come and fill them with your Holy Spirit. Come and release among us the gifts of your Spirit. I suspect there are people here that are thirsting for more. And if you'd like to be prayed for, then please, please come. We'd love to pray for you. I think there are a group of people here who are loving the stories who wouldn't, but have never, ever laid hands on anything, animal, vegetable, or mineral. And you would love to do that. You'd love an opportunity to pray for somebody. You'd love to be brave enough to talk about your faith. Reckless enough to offer to pray for somebody. And if that's you, why don't you come? I'd love to pray for you. We would love to prefer you. We'd like to put you first. But why don't you come up the front and we'll pray for you? In this moment, ready, steady. Come. If you're praying, I want you to continue to pray. You don't even listen to my voice. And everyone else, I just want you to know, I hope Eleanor doesn't mind. I'm reading her notes up here says, and a wimp was turned into a warrior, which we know that she said, and this is to be true of all of our lives, not able to fight on behalf of the kingdom of God until the spirit of the Lord is with us and upon us. When Lisa arrived at the airport just a few days ago from a worship retreat, our little girls got her a flower and it had this little capsule with water in it to give the flower water, we left it in the car and it froze, right? So then the flower died. And and what? And for Piper, she's going, the flower died, but there's water. No, but it wasn't living water. That was frozen water. That wasn't, that's not what gives life. That's just frozen and stale. And, and what we talked about was seven churches, disciple two people, zero doubt that the kingdom of God is coming into the neighborhood. We won't be frozen water. We will be people of living water. So let's, let me pray for you and dismiss you and make sure you thank the children's workers for taking care of our kids tonight. Father, we pray that over all of our lives that we admit we are wimps, we are ragamuffins, we are nothing without the Spirit of God, that we will be able to fight on behalf of what is righteousness, to help the oppressed, to see healing for the sick. We will be able to be warriors in the kingdom of God when your spirit flows through us in this way. May this be true of Discover Church. May this be true. Bless all that is happening. May healing flow. May truth flow in this place, we pray. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.